Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Is there a better character trait to end the series on than to be zealous for the Lord and allow those character traits that are found in Christ to be lived out through us to others? Now, some of you are still wrestling with this whole idea of zeal and you're a little nervous because you tend to be a little shy or more shy than others. And you think, is he going to now tell me that I've got to come out of my shell and be like one of those television uh, pitchmen that are up there that are just yelling at the people and you've got to buy and go weak and chop and dice and all that? No, I'm not saying you've got to change your personality. I know that when you go to Costco and maybe you go to some of these home shows, they have this guy up there with the spotlights on and the tables up there with all those paraphernalia and he's looking out at you. And he can almost sell anything. He can sell snowballs to people who live in Alaska in the winter or jalapenos to people who live in the desert. And you think he can sell all of that stuff. Let me tell you something. God is not looking for you to change your personality. All he's looking for is that you would take the personality that he has divinely designed you to have and use that properly and be zealous within that personality. He's also going to let you take the gifting if you know Christ is Savior. You've been given a particular gift. Not to change the gift, but have something beating within your heart would be his zeal and come out from your personality and use that personality and spiritual gift in a proper, zealous way. But in order for us to do that, we need to understand what is zeal, what's right zeal, what's wrong zeal, and even what is zeal. And so we looked at some of our translations and different dictionaries and resources, and some of those that I found very helpful would be an Old Testament one from the Hebrew that describes what zeal is using the Old Testament Hebrew word. And here's what it basically said. It said the word is used to denote a passionate, consuming zeal focused on God that results in doing His will and the maintaining of His honor in the face of ungodly acts of men and women. Boy, do I like that. And you're going to see that displayed in a few moments as I share with you one particular story, although there are many stories that live out the biblical understanding of zeal from the Old Testament alone. When I go into the New Testament, it's interesting because there are different Greek words that are found, but it really is translated with three different English phrases. So let's stay with the English phrases, and I'd like to read those to you so that you're getting an understanding when I begin to talk about how we need to be zealous. And here's how it's used in the New Testament. Once it's used for the word fervent, which means to boil or to glow. And it's found two times, and one is in Acts 25 that says this. Listen carefully, it's very interesting. It says, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. That's another way to say zealous. Being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. So here's a guy who was able to hear truth correctly, and then the spirit of zeal, that fervent spirit he had, so motivated him now to take that truth and speak it and to teach it to others. Have you ever had a teacher that was really passionate? You knew when they were up there, they had a good command of what they were going to say. They believed it with all of their heart. And more than that, they wanted you to understand it and have ownership of it. How many of you have had a teacher like that in your life? All right, notice how you responded better to that. How about if I ask you this question? How many of you had a teacher that you had to force yourself to go to class, and once you were there, you had to force yourself to stay awake? How many of you had a teacher like that? Would you raise your hand? Isn't it weird more of you raised your hand on the second one than on the first one? Well, again, if you're fervent for the Lord, it's God's zeal that takes over within us because we become passionate about God and about His truth, and we want others to be connected to that. 
And that's not something that you can manufacture. Oh, you might do a little sin management for a while, but it's not something that will have sustaining action in your life. It's when it's real. Another time that's found is in Romans 12, 11 that says, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, and then it tells you how, serving the Lord. And I like the fact that it said serving the Lord and it didn't put you into a little box. So you know whom you serve, the Lord, how you serve and what tools you serve and where you serve. He gives you a lot of liberty to be able to do that within His will. And so you're to do it fervently serving the Lord. Well, the second time it's found in the New Testament with a different word is actually the word zeal. And it says this, For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heriopolis. In other words, it says this person had zeal for other people. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more later on. But the zeal that we find even in the New Testament is not a self-centered zeal all about you showing so much enthusiasm to get, 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 and get all you can get. No, it's all about what can I do serving the Lord to serve other people because I love others. And then the final way it's found in the New Testament is just the phrase, one burning with zeal, and you'll see it found in Titus chapter 2, which Christopher read so carefully this morning, and he had a bad cold, and he came and he read anyway, and I appreciate that. And here's what he read. Titus 2 says, The Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that'd be you and me, that he, Christ, might redeem us, buy us away from, every lawless deed, but to purify himself, to himself, a special people, here's the phrase, zealous for good works. Just to know that God looked upon me, a lost sinner, and he says, I want you to perform good works correctly for the right motives, with the right power, in the middle of all sorts of temptation and affliction. I want you to do good deeds, and I want you to be zealous about that. And that's what God has done for us. Have you ever wondered why there are certain Christians that just seem to, nothing gets them down. They're like the the Energizer bunny that just keep going and going and going. It's because within them is the zeal of the Lord that is not blocked by any known sin that they've regarded in their heart. So all that power and zeal is unleashed for them to move forward. Again, do not read this into the message. I'm not saying that you have to stop being your personality and be some kind of a person that walks around with wild shirts and speaking real loud and wild mannerisms. It just means that when you see what is right, no matter the cost, you're going to do it because there is something that will propel you within you to get you beyond the fear barrier, to get you beyond the, I'm afraid that I can't do this, insecure barrier. That zeal is a zeal that is not yours, that you cannot manufacture. There's no books that are written on this thing. It's all supernatural zeal that's found in Christ. Well, I'd like to submit to you a working definition of zeal that you might be able to work with your family. It's a very short one. Simply, zeal is fervently serving the Lord in others. That's all. Fervently serving the Lord in other people. Well, I wanted to go into Scripture and to find a passage of Scripture that not only would display and illustrate zeal, but I wanted you to see the actual words in there that talked about zeal. And as I did my research in the Old Testament, I found something that was so magnanimous that I thought that there would be a lot of truth in it. So I wanted to cover a little bit more verses in one section of Scripture for all of us to grab a hold of this particular passage. But I'm also aware that there are people listening to me, maybe on the radio or maybe on their MP3 player, they're very much at the beginning of their search for God and This story I'm about to read to you about zeal may come across very harsh. And for some of our young people, this might even sound a little gory. But I want you to understand that behind this story is a great truth. But before I can give you this story, I have to give you the backstory to this so that you can catch the impact even greater. So if you will, give me a few moments to set us up for what this is teaching regarding biblical zeal in our life. 
All right, you have what we know as God's people, the Jews. They were in Egypt. Most of you know that. They were underneath these heavy bosses, employers, taskmasters. In fact, they were getting so angry with the Jews that not only did they whip these Jews to make them to produce work, but they also made the Jews to go out and find their own resources in order to make the things that they need to make, which would be bricks. And they weren't doing that, so they were flogging them. Well, you can imagine these Jews were just screaming out unto the Lord and saying, Oh, God, this is too hard for us. So God then granted to them a deliverer, and we know his name. His name was Moses. So by a certain set of supernatural acts that God did to reveal himself to the Egyptian people, as well as those who were observing from the outside would be the Jews, then what happened is Pharaoh released the Jews to get him out of his country, get away from all that affliction that he was getting from the Jews' God, and he released them. Those Jews then went out into the wilderness. They were only supposed to be there for a short time, just really a few days to, before they could get into this very wonderful promised land. But because they got their eyes off, their Lord, off the Lord, onto themselves, they became very fearful as they looked at other people. God judged them for 40 years. Now, we're not yet to this story. But all during that time, God said, I love you, Jews, and I've got a real blessing waiting for you in a land that is not desert, a land that flows, so to speak, with milk and honey, which is basically a euphemism for all the food you'll ever want to eat. It's always going to be fresh, plenty of water, plenty of meat to eat, everything that you need in this wonderful land. And this land is going to be yours. And once you're in that land, you're going to bless all the people of the entire world. You're going to multiply so much. This is going to be a special land for you. So now he's setting them all up. And these Jewish people, many dying in the wilderness, babies were being born, they grew up and they're getting ready because they've been hearing about this God from their mom and dad, what God did in Egypt. They saw this God operate in the wilderness. They even saw this God as he tabernacled or tented or camped among them. He would, they would see his beautiful cloud by day and the cloud would move and they would move with the cloud knowing that this is a supernatural God in this cloud. And then at night, when it'd be all dark, there'd be this pillar of fire that would not normally be there, but knew that that was an emblem of God. And so they were able to see God work in many different ways. So now they just about get to the promised land. They're on the threshold of getting across the Jordan into this wonderful land. And you would think by then these children of Israel would be singing the same praise songs that we sang this morning with the same joy in their heart. Well, that wasn't the case. Because in the midst of all of that, something else was going on. We know that Satan is out there that is trying to influence God's people to take away the glory from God and bring it on themselves, knowing that in doing that, God's people will be essentially depressed, discouraged, destroyed even. God's people wouldn't lose their salvation if they placed their faith in Christ, but they'd sure lose everything else that would go with it. And I'm going to tell you that that's a sad case. And so what happened was, in the desert experience, there were enemies out there. The Moabites, the Midianites... And that's where this story begins. And you need to know that God did all of this by delivering them from Egypt, teaching them about him in the wilderness, and then about ready, momentarily ready, to unleash upon them the greatest blessing they would have ever experienced in their life. And now this happens. And we're going to see about zeal in this. So if you'll follow along, I want to tell you this story. This story is not just an isolated story in the Old Testament. It is so profound. It is so much used of God because there's so much truth in this story. Listen, now listen. It's mentioned six times, not once, not twice, not three times. Six times it is used as a teaching illustration for us. And I'm wondering if it's because we could have had a V8. In other words, we are so hard-headed, we don't get this stuff. And I'm praying today that the Spirit of God would fall on all of us to see what sin does and sometimes what zeal needs to do to counter that. And we're going to see that in this passage. It's a very profound passage. 
Now, in this passage, so you kind of know ahead of time what you're going to be looking for, I'm going to give you some little signs like you're looking at a map. The particular sins that the Lord is about ready to deal with, and zeal is a part of that, are some of the following. And I want you to see in how horrible they are. The first one may not sound so bad because we see it happening all around, and unfortunately, there may be some that are listening to my voice right now committing this sin. And you think, hey, everything's okay so far. And then there are others that are so despicable, we think, oh, man. All right, here's this first sin. This is the sin of fornication. The second sin was sexual involvement with people who are not God's people. So it would be God's people having sexual activities with people who are not God's people. You can think about that happening. The third in this story is going to be an involvement with religious pagan influences. So in other words, they weren't just having sex. They were having sex with people who weren't even Christian, so to speak, if I could apply it for today. At the same time, that was also a part of a pagan ritual. So it wasn't just sex. It was part of a worship thing going on as well. It moved from that now where that they were ascribing to someone else their worship. So it wasn't just having sex. It wasn't having sex with people that are not God's people. It wasn't just that it was a religious experience having sex. They turned it into that to try to clean it up. They were now going to be worshiping God through all of this thing, but not the true God, another God. They were abandoning the God who took them out of the, 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 the confines of Egypt and taught them in the wilderness, and they were about ready to go into the promised land. That God they were abandoning for sex, for sex with people who weren't God's people, for a worship experience that was not even biblical and worshiping a non-God, a nothing. It wasn't even God. It was a man-made thing. But that's not all. It also involves something where that they were binding their hearts to it. Now, here's what's important about that. You can have sex once and it could be with someone who's outside the faith. It could be in a religious thing because you're kind of doing it because you get some kind of a religious experience. And maybe for that moment you're going to worship another God. And so that's a momentary event, maybe a couple events. That's not what was going on here. They were literally selling their soul to the whole experience of what I'm telling you to a non-God saying that non-God is my God. They were joining themselves with that. That meant their value system, their belief, their heart, everything that was going to that one God. Can you imagine being God for a moment and knowing all that you did and knowing all that you're going to do to your special chosen people and here they are, quote, whoring after another God and even sexually involved in that as well. But that's not all. They were also now joining to that God hand and heart, if I can use that term. The heart was they were giving themselves over from the inside out totally, and they were also now doing it physically with everything that they had on the outside. So we call it hand and heart. You take those five or six sins and you put them all together, this event is going on. And our God would not be an authentic God if he didn't deal with that, if he ignored that, or if he just slapped their hand, or maybe took away some candy from them. No, he's a God that said, my name has to be protected. All that I know and teach of righteousness needs to be kept pure. And so he had to judge them. And so that's where this story now takes place. It's about to begin on the threshold of coming into the promised land. And God had to deal with it swiftly and completely because his name was at stake. Now, if you'll follow along, I'll unpack this for us. So it says this. First of all, this is illustrated in the sin. Let me read the sin to you. It says, now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, which is right there by Jordan. And then it says, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. So that means the Moabites invited the Israelites to sacrifice and to give themselves over to these gods. And the people ate and they bowed down to their gods. So now they're doing the heart and the hand thing. So Israel was joined 
Now, I mean, they were completely given over to Baal, a Peor. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against them. And God had a right to have that anger. So that's not wrong for him to be angry. After all he did and who he is, he could not permit that. So then the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord. In other words, execute them. Put them out in the sun so everybody could see them openly. And in a sense, we could read in there to also be decimated by the sun and all the elements. Then that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses obeyed God and he said to the judges of Israel, here's what you're to do. Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. Let me pause for a moment. Aren't we so glad that we live in a day today that should we step back away from God and allow the world to influence us in such a way that we give our money, our allegiance, our heart, our bodies over to a materialism God and that He doesn't kill us like He did in the Old Testament? It's because we're underneath a new umbrella called grace. Now, Bible also says this very quickly. Shall we continue in our sin so that grace may abound? Scripture says, heaven forbid, God forbid, that we should continue in that any longer. That's why the verse was read to us this morning, that this grace should teach us to deny the sin, but to also live righteously. And the grace also gives us the power to do that. But let me get back to this story, because they're not under grace, they're under law here. It says, and indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Let me pause for a moment. Now, remember how I was describing to you the sins that were going on. Now, lest you think that it was just one man and one woman that committed this sin and God's all torqued over this thing, that's not what this story is saying. What it is saying that there were thousands that were doing this. In fact, I believe if I could get the the count from Scripture, there were 24,000 people that either were doing this or were implicitly permitting this to go on, and they lost their lives. So God was judging a bigger thing. So what's happening now is the judgment of God was already sweeping down on the children of Israel for doing everything we've just talked about. But there was one guy who happened to be part of a family, the Simeonites. And this particular guy was the son of the big tribal leader of the Simeonites. He then takes a woman who herself was the daughter of a tribal leader of the Midianites who were not God's people. In the midst of the people weeping in repentance because they're watching their family and friends die around them because they're being executed for giving themselves over to this other God and system, this guy parades into camp, this woman, and flaunts it in front of Moses, flaunts it in front of his family, tells him about it, flaunts it in front of all these people that are weeping, flaunts them in front of all the funerals that were probably going around. He then goes into his family's big tent, like big mansion in those days. It wasn't a building, a tent. And now he begins the sex act with this person, again, flaunting what he can do. It doesn't matter. I can get away with anything I want. Now, Christians even today will cover up their sin, hoping nobody finds out about it. This one just did it openly. And I don't know where your heart is right now, but I pray that the Spirit of God is bringing a sense of of conviction and a sense of relief that we live under grace. But now we're going to let that grace do surgery on us. But now where does the zeal come in? Let's go a little bit further in the story. So that's what's happening. This guy goes in the tent with this woman. In the solution is the second bullet point. We see it demonstrated. This is now when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, 
Now, if you want to circle some of these, you're going to see some action going on now. He saw it. In other words, he was aware of it. He didn't deny it. He didn't turn his head away from it. He saw something terrible was going on. He arose from among the congregation, and he took a javelin in his hand. He went after the man into the tent. He thrust them both through, the man and then the woman. So one passage says he did it with one swoop. So it went through the back of the man, through the chest of the woman, and he kind of nailed them right to the, to the ground below. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. One man saw the sin, saw this person do this. No one else stood up. No other leader did. Not the father, not a friend, not a brother, nobody. But Phineas said, this has got to stop. Now that took a great deal of zeal to do that. Now here's what I don't know about Phineas. I don't know what his personality style was. I don't know if he was one that didn't like blood. I didn't know if he was a great mighty warrior at times that he did things. All I do know is that he came from a priesty kind of family. Doesn't mean he was limp-wrist and sad and all that. It does mean that he was someone that probably could easily see right and wrong. And he was propelled, again, listen folks, by what is right. And that made him act. Righteousness for a holy God took someone regardless of personality and caused him to act. That's my point. Now let's go now to the settlement. It says this. Now when Phineas was all done with this, it says the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phineas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because, and I put it in bold print for you, so follow me now very carefully. He turned away my wrath because he was zealous with my zeal. Would you mark that? It wasn't that Phineas had his zeal. He didn't work up some great emotional frenzy to do this. He wasn't driven by tremendous anger. He had the zeal of God within him. So that I did not consume the children of Israel, the Lord says, in my zeal. So he had zeal. That zeal was God's zeal that's within him. Now let's pause for a moment before we go any further. When I began this little message today to us, I kept talking a lot about the exchange life. I didn't use that term, but it's more like... God lives his life out through us. Every one of the character traits, I either showed you an illustration of that character trait in the life of Christ or in an action that God was attributed to so that you would see that whatever character trait we have, it's not we developing a good trait that we see there that we want to have in our life and so now we act that character trait. It's more like saying, Lord, that is your character trait. It is a right character trait. I can't do this consistently. I cannot do it with strength. I need that character trait in my life. And since it is in you, then Lord, I am now looking at you to so fully, completely control my life. So fully influence me that I'm transferring my impotence of zeal, my weakness in zeal, or my incorrect amount of zeal, or the right, wrong motive for zeal. I'm changing all my zeal, and I want your zeal to be inside of me. So what you're doing now is you're allowing God, who is in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the Holy Spirit who is in you right now, you're allowing that zeal because it's going to be moderated, watch this out, watch, 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 with grace, using your personality, the way he's divinely designed you. So that's why it's not zeal you create, it's zeal that you now let God display through you and me. Now, let's go on with the passage. There's more truth in here. Therefore say, behold... I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be. In other words, the Lord tells Moses to tell uh, Phineas this. Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of everlasting priesthood. That means you're going to be blessed. 
After you, there'll be many more priests that'll come because you are now displaying zeal and holiness. Now it says, because he was zealous for his God and made the atonement for the children of Israel. Now, folks, I want you to park on that last phrase. This is, this is huge. This is huge truth right here. Because he was zealous for his God. He wasn't zealous to show himself that he's more righteous than everybody else. He wasn't zealous because he was going to judge other people. He wasn't zealous because he wanted to show how powerful he was or how straight he can throw his javelin. He wasn't zealous for anything else other than he was zealous for his God. Now watch. And made atonement for the children of Israel. Look up here for a moment. True zeal of the Lord, part of knowing it's true zeal of the Lord, is are you doing it to bring glory to Him? Is it so that it's all about Him and not about you? But it goes on further than that. There are people to say, I love the Lord with all my heart, but they don't live any differently. They don't fulfill the work that it just said that He did. In this passage, he's zealous for my Lord, and he then did the job. So real zeal will actually show up in some form of action in your life. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear.